you would turn to Psalm 5, I'm going to take a break from Mark tonight. Turn to Psalm 5. Should be pretty easy to find. So let me ask you a question that kind of goes without asking in a way, but so you know, a lot of times, how many of us have been in a distressing situation that was really kind of, we knew it was really over our ability to be able to cope with, bigger than we were, and all of us have been that at that point. Some of us are maybe even there tonight, I don't know, and, and, it, and we'll all be there sometime in the future, we just have those moments. And that's when David, he's writing Psalm 5, he's writing that at a time in his life when really his troubles really were bigger than him. So traditionally, Psalms 3, 4, and 5 are all taken to be written at the time that Absalom, his son, had revolted against him. And I mean, he's dealing with some overwhelming feelings and emotions that are taking place. His favorite son is betraying him, coming after him, wanting to slay him. He's having to deal with that. I mean, I've thought about it with Thomas. I couldn't imagine if Thomas ever got that upset with me and betrayed me in that way and was coming after me. I'd just be hard for me to take in a lot of ways, right? You guys are like, I couldn't imagine Thomas doing that either. Well, I couldn't either. <laughs> but you just think about that, your own favorite son coming after you. And not on top of that, but we've talked about this. David knew that all this is happening. Why? Why is all this trouble in his house? It's because of his own sin. I mean, that just probably became very overwhelming from him. You know, and today, though, that situations happen today. You know, what do people today, how would they, you go to them, well, I don't know how to cope with this. Well, you know, why don't you, David, just get some family counseling? Or, you know, why don't you take the kid to court and just get it settled legally over who ought to be king of Israel? You know, but that wasn't David's way of handling things, was it? Because how did he handle it? He took it to God in prayer, put his trust in the Lord. And, you know, a lot of people, they'll say, well, you know, you Christians, I've, I've heard this before, you know, you you become religious and you do all this because it's just a crutch. You're just weak. You know, that's how you deal with life's problems. You just won't deal with them in a real way like everybody else. But in reality, is that what's going on? Because I think it's the God-given way for us to, as I heard a man say, slug our way through troubles. Because trouble brings prayer, doesn't it? And are we really weak when we take it, as the song says, take it to the Lord in prayer? Because in actuality, what are we doing? We're entrusting our situation to the one that has unlimited power and unlimited wisdom and ability and sovereignty to deal with the situation we're facing. And it's overwhelming us. So we look here, we'll read Psalm 5, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice, he says, you'll hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto you and will look up. I'm going to expect an answer. For you are not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy them that speak. King James says leasing. The word means deceit. Thou shalt destroy them that speak deceit. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, David writes, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But, he says, verse 11, let all those that put their trust in you do what? Rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because you, Lord, defend them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Verse 12, for thou, Lord, you will bless the righteous with favor. You will compass him as with a shield. So we know James 5 says this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He goes on to say that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And it says he prayed 
earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months, three and a half years. And it says he prayed again earnestly, prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. And so the question is, do we have to be a prophet for God to hear our prayers? Do we have to be a Catholic priest for God to hear our prayers? That's what they teach you there, or an apostle? Or do we have to be a king like David? Do we have to be like David? So it says that Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. He was just a human being. And that could be quoted, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Or the Greek is, it's very powerful in its working. It's just, there's two conditions laid out there for prayer to prevail. And one of them is you have to be a righteous person. You just got to have a right heart towards the Lord. Now, I listened to something the other night. I said, it's not so much God. We, we can tend to fall in that trap to think, man, we just have to do everything exactly perfect. You know, we don't leave any room for error to think for us to fall into that righteous God is going to hear my prayer category. And I'd say, no, I don't think that's what God demands because none of us would get our prayers answered then, right? I think what he asks for is just that our intention is to serve him. And that may include falling every now and then, maybe falling today, maybe falling right before you came here. But that wasn't your intention. That's not your intention is in my life. My intention is to serve God, to obey God. I may fail. I may fall. But God in his grace overlooks those things. That's not that we don't have to repent or whatever all else, but that doesn't disqualify us. And he says in 1 Peter 3, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's against those that know they're doing evil and say, I'm just going to keep doing it anyways. Their intention isn't to make things right with the Lord or to walk in his ways. Those are the ones they didn't hear their prayers. But just because you fall and you miss it, or you realize you're not perfect, or he puts you in a trial that exposes something in you, that doesn't disqualify you. None of us are perfect from the get-go, are we? That's where he's bringing us to, right? The second thing, it says Elijah prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Earnest prayer, intense prayer, passionate prayer. Literally, it says he prayed with prayer. That's, that's a Hebrew quote-unquote idiom for saying he just didn't, you know, it just wasn't this Lord bless this food and, da, 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 and you just can't wait to dive in. You're not even paying any attention to what you're saying. What he's saying there is that the effectual fervent prayer. This is a prayer where you mean business. You're intense about what you're doing. He's saying, hey, if you're a righteous person and you do that, it's going to get some results. That's what God's word promises. Amen? Amen. Now I'm going to say, we, we've got a prayer meeting coming tomorrow night. We've got a brother that's in a serious trial. I'm saying, don't come if you don't want to come. But I would really love to see people come tomorrow night out of concern. Maybe you could even go the day without eating and come. We've got somebody in a serious trial. We've got several people in serious trials here. And that's all prayer meeting is all about. It's just praying for them, showing concern for your brothers and sisters. We'll be here Thursday night, tomorrow night. But there is a story we're talking about earnest prayer, that God hears that and it's effectual. You know, one Sunday night back in April, 1912, it was the night the Titanic went down. There was this American woman. She couldn't sleep. Couldn't sleep because she had this fear, this oppression that came over. And then it developed into this burden of prayer. And it came such a burden she with earnestness began to pray for her husband she knew he was on this ship in the mid-atlantic she didn't know what was going on hours and hours she prayed for her husband she's dead tired she can't get away from this burden and she's praying for her husband no assurance that anything's right kept praying on in agony and finally at five o'clock in the morning she looked at the clock it all lifted and she had this perfect peace and assurance in her heart and she went on and went to bed meanwhile here she is. There's the one camera if you're having a movie. There she is, earnest in prayer, by her bed, this burden, this fear for her husband, kind of like what happened with Jane when Brett got in that plane wreck. I was thinking about that. But her husband, Colonel Gracie was his name. He's doomed with all the other hundreds. They're going to sink with the, the Titanic. And men back then, you know, they had a little bit of chivalry about them. And a lot of them were Christians. And you know what the men did? Not most of them. Most of them helped the women and children in the lifeboats and just figured we're going to drown. And that's what happened with him. Helped hundreds of people in these lifeboats. That's what he's doing. He's figured, I'm, I'm done for. And sure enough, he didn't get in the lifeboat. And when the ship 
went down, it's just created this big suction whirlpool, and he feels himself going down underwater. Before that happened, he prayed to his wife out of his heart. He said, man, I wish I could get a message to my wife, just let her know how much I love you. And he just said, goodbye, darling, in his heart. Anyways, he goes down under that water, and he just did what he instinctively did under that cold ice water. He's just crying out to God and just starts swimming upward. The next thing you know, bam, he's on the surface of the water. And he just happens to come up, because he could have come up at a lot of places, right near an overturned lifeboat. Managed to get hold of that thing with a couple other people, and another lifeboat was near enough around. It came and pulled him in to safety. You know what time that lifeboat pulled him in? One, two, three, five o'clock. Yeah, that's when his wife had that peace come over her, right? But think about that. That was earnest prayer, supplication, that prayer that wasn't going to let go. And God put that on her heart. And it overcame. That's the kind of prayer that's over going to come sickness, going to overcome your family problems, going to overcome death itself. Now we're going to see in this psalm tonight that those that follow and trust Jesus Christ, we are all going to need his help and deliverance in time of trouble. And so this is the model prayer for that. You know, they came and asked Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And it's like the Holy Spirit put this psalm on David's heart. And he says, here, I want you to write this because this is the model prayer for when people, God's people are in trouble. Here it is right here. Psalm 5. So the first thing I want to look at in these first three verses of Psalm 5 is it's David's, in a sense, preparing himself. It's his prayer for deliverance with expectation. Psalm verses 1 to 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For he says, unto thee will I pray. My voice you'll hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto you, and I will look up. And so don't a lot of times, don't you just feel like, man, the way this situation is developing, I have got to get God's ear. And that's what David's saying here. And that's many times in the Psalms, he says that Psalm 17, 1, he cries out, Psalm 17, 1, hear, O Lord, a just cause. I'm not trying to get you to do something that's not right, but I'm in a situation. I've got a just cause I'm bringing before you. He says, hear a just cause, O Lord, give heed to my cry. I'm crying out, Lord, I need you to listen to this. He goes on to say, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. He's like, you know, the situation I'm putting before you is a righteous one. I'm not being deceitful about this. Psalm 55, one to three. He says, give ear to my prayer, O God. There he is again. He's got to get hold of God and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. He says, Here's his distress again. I am restless in my complaint and surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy. And so when you get in those desperate situations, it's almost like at times, I'm sure you've experienced this, you're almost demanding the ear of God. You know, please listen to me. These thoughts and these feelings and this situation are just overwhelming me. I'm drowning in the pain and distress at times. Have you ever been there? It's just hard really to even have the right words to say. And it just comes out like in a groan that's not even articulate. And that's what David is saying. It, that's what it means when he says, consider my meditation. Because, you know, here in a Western culture with all the Eastern influence with yoga and all that, you know, we think when someone says they're meditating, they're, you know, in the lotus position with their hands, you know, and getting in this peaceful state. Well, that's not what it means. Well, that word meditate there means to talk to yourself in inexpressible words. It's really the Old Testament version of Romans 8 with groanings that cannot be uttered is really what it's talking about there. And I mean, have you ever been that upset with the situation that kind of all you can do is, in a sense, at times just groan about it? I mean, I have. I have many times. And that's what David's doing. So he starts it off. He says, well, give ear to my words. Listen to the words I'm saying, but consider, just understand, Lord. He can't hear those words, but just understand my groaning. It's not words you can hear, but I'm just asking you to look down at this is where I'm at. It's just coming out as a groan, but please try to understand that. And he goes on to say in verse two, hearken to the voice of my cry. And that word cry, this isn't just a small cry. This is a cry out in distress. Really troubled with this situation with his son. Really troubled. It's over his head. He needs help. He knows he needs 
divine help. Look over just a few chapters over. We're in chapter 5. Look what he says in verse 3. This is the song we sing all the time. Chapter 3, verse 4. I'm sorry. Chapter 3, Psalm 3, verse 4. He says, I cried. It's the same word. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Because we know from that psalm, he is surrounded by multitudes, including his son, that all they want is his death. That's all they desire. And that would have to be pretty distressing, right? And we have instance, I talked about it last night in prison when I preached. We have instance after instance of that in the Bible of people, righteous people, God's people crying out to him. And he doesn't turn his ear. He doesn't turn him down. The Syrophoenician woman. Actually, if you would just turn over there, I would like to look at this one. Matthew 15, verses 22 to 25. And here's a woman in distress. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 22, it says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast, and she cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David, because my daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. She is being tormented with a devil. She's having to watch that every day. It's tearing her up. And she's crying out. She's realizing, Jesus you know, getting into this story, he's up. Gregory's going to hear it for the third time. He was there last night. But she's up in Gentile territory. She's where Jezebel is, Tyre and Sidon. He's not spending his time up there. He just happened to make a trip because he wants to get away to be alone and teach his disciples. But those people from up in that area had been around earlier and brought their sick and severely oppressed and evil spirit oppressed people down to him. And he'd, he'd healed them around Galilee. And they went back and reported what had happened. And they probably are the ones that see him. He's coming in this area. And they probably tell this woman, look what you've got going on with your daughter. We saw him heal tons of people like that. No problem. Worse off than your daughter even. Limbs restored. People walking. We saw all kinds of things happen like that. This man, this prophet from Galilee, God has visited them through this man. And he's just staying down there in a house, a few houses down. Take her down there. He'll take care of her. And that's what it says happens there. She heard about that. Verse 22 came out of the same case. It, it says it in Mark's account. You don't get it so much here. But that's what it says in Mark's account. She heard about it. She brings him down there. And she comes and she cries out. She's going to make sure this is the one that can help her out because they didn't have hospitals and clinics with medication and psychiatrists back then. It's either Jesus or nothing. It's going to be his power or she's going to be under the power of that devil. And so she cries out to him, my daughter's grievously vexed with the devil. In verse 23, it says, he's rude. He doesn't answer her a word, just ignores her. And his disciples came, and they are tired of hearing her. It's like I said last night, you got a baby crying, and she's like that. She probably started off crying. She probably, he's ignoring her. She probably just kept getting louder and louder and louder and louder, like a baby does when you ignore your baby, right? They don't just stop. They just get to where their veins are sticking out and they're red in the face. And, that, this, and after a while, just like with a parent, sometimes you get a little, you do something about the kid. Feed him, okay? Please. You know, right? And that's the disciple. Would you tell her to go away? She is getting on our nerves. Give her something. Do whatever. That's what's going on here. Answered her not a word. Send her away. She's crying, verse 23. She's crying after it. But he answered and said, I'm not sent finally talks to her. I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here's her desperation. She came and worshipped him saying, and we've talked about it before, three short words, but it's all there. Lord, help me. She's crying out to him. And he helped her, didn't he? He did help her. You know, in Mark 5 and J. Iris, we're talking about people cry out when they get in distress, when they get in desperate situations. Jairus is verses 22 to 23. It says, Behold, there comes one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And it says, He begged him. He besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter, my only little daughter, lies at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed, and he says, and she shall live. And it seemed like Jesus waited a little too long to get there, didn't it? And sometimes it seems like he's waiting a little too long, but he didn't. He encouraged her. Hey, I had to stop and take care of this woman with an issue of blood. She had a situation too. I'm not going to let her go. 
And he looks at them and they're coming and saying, I don't even waste your time. She's dead. And he looks, he knows what that was going to do to that man. He still had to exercise faith. He said, don't fear. Only believe. Only believe is what the Lord told him, right? And she did live. Esther. Mordecai gets word, old Haman. Ah, we're talking here about the enemies of the Lord with deceit. We'll try to get thing, get them hung. He'd build a gallows. It was going to kill all the Jews and was going to hang Mordecai on it. Mordecai gets news about that. His people, the king's decree, he knows it can't be changed. Hey, in the natural, he's thinking it is all over. And here's what it says. You read Esther 4.1. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city. And here's what it says. It says, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And I'd say that cry reached the ears of the Lord. He took care of that situation. Jehoshaphat, the king, gets in a league with Ahab. He messed up. Shouldn't have been doing that, didn't he? Gets into war with Ahab. And Ahab's like, hey, why don't you wear the king's robe? I'll dress like everybody else. Sounds like a setup to me. Well, anyways, they see Jehoshaphat. They noticed he's a king, and they're going to surround him, and they are going to kill him, aren't they? And what does it say happened? So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, surely it is the king of Israel. Therefore, they all turned around, surrounded him, turned aside to fight against him. And what did Jehoshaphat do? Now, Jehoshaphat was a righteous king, a righteous man. And it says, when the righteous cry, the Lord does what? He heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. And that's what he did for Jehoshaphat. Supernaturally, hey, they realized this isn't the right guy. And they left him alone. But why? Because he cried out to the Lord. I mean, we could go on and on and on about cases like that. So back to Psalm 5. Psalm chapter 5. He says, hearken unto the voice of my cry. And then what does he say? He doesn't say king and God. He says, you are my king and my God. That's who David was, his king and his God. And the king back then, hey, he was the one that offered protection in battle. And that's what we have going on here. And what's impressive, what we need to see about this is, is who was David? David was the king, but he realizes, look, my authority, I don't have anything compared to the king of kings, the king of the universe. And he looked to God as the true king of Israel. Psalm 44, 4 says this. David said, you are my king, O God, command victories for Jacob. And Isaiah 33, 22, Isaiah writes this, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And he is the one that will save us. And he's still in that business, isn't he? God is our king, and he still is the one that he has the power and the ability to save us. The psalmist says, he proclaims this in Psalm 95, 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He's saying there is no other king other than Yahweh. And that's the time when... All these nations believed that their kings were empowered by the spirit that they worshipped, the gods that they worshipped. And the psalmist is saying, hey, there is no other god. There is no other king. All these nations, their, their gods and their kings just let them down every time. But you, O oh Lord, you are the king, the true king. And if you would turn to Psalm 89, and we'll read that, verses 11 to 18. And it says there, the heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name because you have a mighty arm. Strong is thy hand and high is thy right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is what? He is, the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is who? He says, he is our king. He's the one that gives the victory. How great is God? He starts it off saying, he is the one that's created the heavens and the earth. 
He's the one. Isaiah 40, Isaiah goes through all of that. If you turn over to Isaiah 40, and that's what Isaiah 40 is all about. And Wesley had a word from Red Eyes, the very last part of Isaiah 40 the other night. I felt like that was the Lord. But Isaiah 40 is all about describing who this great God is that we're trusting in. And it starts off in verse 10. He says, Behold, the Lord, He's the one that will come with a strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. And that's the song we say. He will come with a strong hand, won't He? You're trusting in Him. You don't have to worry. He will come with a strong hand to help you. Behold, verse 11, it says, He shall feed his flock. He's gentle about it like a shepherd. He'll take care of his own. He'll gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And he says right there, he's talking, he goes on to talk about the magnificence of the Creator. Verse 12, he says he's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He can hold all the oceans, all the oceans. You look across there and they look vast and unlimited when you're on the shore, don't they? He's saying all of those things that are so unbelievable to us, we can't comprehend having all of it in the palm of our hand, but that's just a, I mean, God's unlimited, right? But he's bringing it down to human terms. The, the what to us we just is overwhelming on how wide it is, how deep it is, how everything it is, all the waters. He says all of those he holds in the palm of his hands. He can measure out the heavens from the tip of his little finger to his thumb. Which, if you've ever gone to the Creation Museum, nobody up in prison had, but probably a lot of us, hey, you see that thing where they show the universe and the stars, it's just like you can't take it all in. And he's saying to God, that's just like a hand span is what he's saying there in verse 12. Weighs the mountains in a scale, the hills in a balance. They're nothing to him, these giant, unbelievable, impressive mountains. He goes on in verse 15, he says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, counted as small dust of the balance. They're like, when you take everything you're weighing off that little dust there, that's what the nations, seven billion people are to the Lord. We couldn't count 7 billion people in your lifetime if you wanted to. And to God, he said, it is nothing to him. Just a drop in the bucket, as the expression goes, which is probably where it came from. And so verse 18, he goes on, Isaiah says, well, then who are you going to liken God? This God that is like that. Or what likeness will you compare him with? And he goes on in verse 19 and 20, you're going to compare him to this piece of wood. You're going to go cut a tree and put gold on it and bow down and worship that as being the invisible, unlimited God of creation. He's like, that's a joke, is basically what he's saying. In verse 21, he says, well, haven't you known? Haven't you heard? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth who this God is? In verse 25, God speaking through Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken me, or who will I be equal to, saith the Lord? Verse 26, he says, just lift up your eyes, look to the heavens, look to the stars, and behold, who has created these things that bring out their host by number? He calls all of them unlimited stars. They're more than the sand of the sea. He says he calls every single one of them by name, by the greatness of his might, for he that is strong in power and not one faileth. And he's going on, what he's saying is, he's got every single one of those stars individually named that are in the universe. Almost unlimited number of stars in shape, sizes, and quantity. Every single one of them. And that's why, look what he says in verse 27, he says, because of that, because of God's knowledge, his greatness, his power, verse 27, then why are you going to say, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, that he doesn't know who you are? If he knows all these inanimate stars by name, numbers every one of them, how would he not know you as child? That's what he's saying in verse 27. Why do you say, Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment, the fact that I've got a problem, is passed over from my God. He says, haven't you known, he asked again, haven't you heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he never faints. He's never weary. There's no searching of his understanding. And here's the word to us, his people, that he, this great God, this God that can hold the world and the waters in his hand, the span in between his fingers of the heavens, this God will condescend to his people. And it says he gives power. To the faint. Do you need power? 
You struggling? That's what he does. To them that have no might, this God increases strength. Youth? Ah, you think to youth? He says, even to youth, they're going to faint and be weary, and the young men will utterly fall. But, verse 31, if you'll just wait upon the Lord, what does he promise he'll do? He shall renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings as eagle. You'll run and not be weary. You shall walk and not faint. Amen? Amen? That's what God will do if you're in a trial, if you're in a struggle. Come and minister to your needs, no matter how unworthy, no matter how little you feel. The same one that's named every star will come and help you. And that's sometimes how it does feel, doesn't it? Sometimes when you're a trial, A.W. Tozier had an article he wrote, The Saint Must Walk Alone. And there are times, it doesn't matter how much you know you have loved ones around you, people that care about you, you can be in a crowd. And sometimes when you're in a trial, it's just like you're in this by yourself. Don't you feel that way at times? That's the way it can be a lot of times. The nights are lonely and dark, and you feel forsaken by all. And David knew what that was like, and he knew this, though. He knew that God, though, would never forsake him. Isn't that what Greg said? If he would just wait on him and wait on his strength. So turn to Psalm 27, and it says this in Psalm 27, beginning in verse 1. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord. He is my strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. And though a host should encamp against me, he says what? My heart shall not fear. Though war would rise up against me. He says, in this, I will be confident. In what? One thing, he says, I've desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so we're talking about God is with his people in trouble when they call unto him. That's what it's saying in verse 5. For in the time of trouble, what will God do? He'll hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He will set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. And when you said, seek my face, my heart said unto you, Lord, thy face will I seek. And he says, when I do that, hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger because you, Lord, have been my help. Leave me not, he cries. Neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. I always love this verse 10. He says, when my mother and my father forsake me. Now, those are the last ones that are going to forsake a person, aren't they? Your mom and your dad, the last ones. But he says, even when that seems to happen, even when mom and dad can't comfort me, he says, then who will take me up? The Lord, he says. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, such as breathe out cruelty. He said, I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And here's what he says at the end. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Because he's not going to leave you or forsake you. That's his promise. Be of good courage. And what will the Lord do? It says, he will strengthen thine heart. So just wait on the Lord. He says, wait, I say, on the Lord. So when we were over in Greece, Lisa and I, our tour guide was the nicest, most unassuming person you could imagine. Just a very nice guy. Never acted like he was anything. Just nice, answer your questions or whatever. The last day we're there, they decided they, the people we stayed at, they were friends of his. Uh, the last place we stayed, they said, we're going to have this big banquet for you guys coming. We just want to have this big party. They had all this food. It was great. We didn't know this was going to happen. And then after all the eating was over, we're sitting outside at this big couple tables, big long tables together. And all of a sudden he said, well, Costas, that was his name. That was our tour guide's name. He said, he'd like to share his testimony with y'all. We're like, really? Wow, Costas has got a testimony. Didn't know what to expect. And he starts telling us this most amazing testimony. He got saved as a teenager. And over there, the Greek Orthodox Church was everything. He was going to be a priest. That's what his parents' wishes were. 
And so for him to do that, it was like a Muslim becoming a Christian. His dad was so mad, he starts hunting him. He didn't just kick him out of the house. He's hunting him like an animal, his own father. He's sleeping on benches. He's sleeping wherever he can. He has nowhere to go. This young teenager, because he's given his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's crying out to God to have mercy on him. And during that time, his dad's hunting him down. His dad did repaired apartments and houses. And somehow or another, he got, I don't know how this happened, but he got Drano mixed up with something else and drank Drano. And it made his dad a vegetable, an imbecile. His dad couldn't do anything for himself, had to wear diapers, couldn't feed himself, had the brain, he would beat pots and pans like a three-year-old would do. And so Costas, this man that had been hunting him, his own father, he takes him and takes care of him for years, praying for him every day. And one day as his dad's laying in bed, God came down in his power and totally restored his father to his, I mean, totally. And his father cried and repented, and it was happily ever after. But here's the thing, as I'm saying, when it seems like things can't get darker, when your father and your mother are hunting you, and you cry out to God, he says, I won't forsake you, I won't leave you alone. And that was a testimony, one of the most amazing testimonies I've ever heard. Because we're saying, David is saying, he is my king. He rules this world. He rules the universe controls it all. He's not only my king, but he is my God, is what he says. King of the earth, king of the earth, rules the earth, and he will help you. And he's not arrogant like earthly kings, is he? We read about this. Behold, the king comes. This is our king. He comes into the meek and sitting upon the foal of an ass. And so Paul gets converted by the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of the earth. Knocks him down on the ground. I'm not going to say he was on a horse because it doesn't say that in the Bible. I learned that one, didn't I, John? But whatever, he knocks him down and appears to him, changes this persecutor, changes him completely. A blasphemer, killing God's people against the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knocks him down to the ground, reveals himself to him. And Paul, when talking about that in 1 Timothy this is what he breaks out into. He says, now unto, this is the one that did this to me. I'm eternally grateful Paul never got over it. He says, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, he says, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If he can do that for Paul, he can change anyone or anything, can he? That's who God is. And back to Psalm 5, David says in verse 3, he says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. In the morning, O Lord, will I direct my prayer to thee. And that is when we should seek the Lord. That's when our mind's the clearest. It's when the day's events haven't got us consumed or it's hard to think about what's going on, right? And that is the time when God renews his loving kindness to us. And he'll speak that way to us. That's what it says. Lamentations, we sing the song. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And when are they new? It says they're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness is what it says in Lamentations. And that's when the thought of a child of God in the morning, he needs to know he has God's love and help and guidance through the day. Psalm 88, 13 says, But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, in the morning shall my prayer come before thee. Psalm 92, 2. It is good to declare your loving kindness in the morning. And then when you make it through the day, he goes on, and your faithfulness, declare that in the evening. Because you got me faithfully through another day. Because I trusted in your loving kindness in the morning. When I prayed and sought you. And by implication, isn't that when the Lord's prayer should be given? doesn't make any sense to say, give us this day our daily bread when the day's over, does it? Does it make any sense to say, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one when the day's over? Not unless you're fighting with your wife and you're not thinking you're going to have a good night's sleep, right? <laughs> that's not the way it works. And also, that's when he gives you instruction, if you'll listen. 
Psalm 50 says, He wakeneth me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. It all happens in the morning. And the Lord Jesus Christ would get up real early in the morning to go pray many times. Isn't that what we read, right? But when you do that, when you pray in the morning, when you confirm His loving kindness to you, right? And it's to receive His mercies. Whatever it is you're asking Him for that you're facing that day, you may know you have some problems coming up, some trouble. You're in the middle of trouble. What does He say there in Psalm 5 at the end of verse 3? I direct my prayer unto the Lord. And then what do you do? You look up. And what's that saying? That's saying you're expecting God to be faithful to you. Right? That's all He's saying and He will be. That's all it's saying. So when you pray, when you're in distress, do you expect answers to come? Isn't that what he says in Luke 18, the unjust judge? He says, man ought always to pray and not to faint, not to give up. You've got to keep pressing in because he gives that example of that unjust judge. The old unjust judge, this woman keeps knocking on his door, bugging him, bugging him, bugging him. He says, that judge, he doesn't care about her. He doesn't fear God. He's not going to give her what she needs because it's the right thing to do, and he should because he's going to have to face God in judgment day. He says, no. The only thing getting that judge to answer her is she's annoying, and he's tired of hearing that all the time. He wants to get rid of her. And he says, so hear what he's saying, and know that God is not like that. You're not bothering him. He's not giving you something just to get you out of the way and to hear you whatever. It may appear that way. He's not answering. But he says, well, God avenge his own elect that are crying out to him day and night. He says, I'm going to tell you, Jesus says, he will avenge them and speedily. Nevertheless, he says, and here's something we all need to consider. When the Son of Man returns, is he going to find any faith at all on this earth? Will he? He can find it here. Can he? Amen. So going on here in Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, it tells us something here. It tells us something about the Lord. Look at verse 4. He says, for you, O Lord, I know something about you. He says, you're not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with you, and the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. And he says this, you hate all workers of iniquity. And what's he saying here? He's saying, there's something about you, Lord, that I know that you are not like this. And what is he not like? He's not like the gods of the heathen. Because the heathen gods, when you read all mythology, all they were were just big overgrown men. They'd be into sex, jealousy, selfish power. They'd fight with each other. They'd lie. They'd steal. They'd actually commit adultery with other gods' wives. They'd do all that stuff. And the heathen would pray to them and then expect something to happen. But they'd fail them every time. Because they're not true gods. They have no power. But he's saying, Lord, I know something about you. You're not like them at all because you don't have any pleasure in sin. You don't involve yourself with sin. In fact, you say you won't let sin live with you. And the word is sojourn. That means you won't even let it visit you. That's how much God hates sin. He says, you're not like those at all. And Israel made the mistake of thinking that God looked favorably on evil. Because Malachi 2 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, well, how have we done that? How have we wearied him? And Malachi says, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Saying, you misconstrued God. He's not like that at all. Because look, in verse 5, he says there, you hate all workers of iniquity. Let me ask you, what does that do with the popular phrase that God hates sin but loves the sinner? They don't want to equate, do they? That's not what he says there. You're in Psalm 5. Look over in Psalm 711. What does it say there? God judges the righteous, and it says God is angry with the sin every day. He says he's angry with people, the wicked, every single day. And you turn over a couple more, you can see in Psalm 11.5, it says, The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loves violence, his soul hates. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? There's a sense in which God loves the wicked, but there is the truest sense he would not be a good God if he did not hate iniquity in those that practice it. That's what hell is all about. So what's the point here? Here's the point. Not to get you quiet, but if you're being oppressed by someone 
and it appears that God is on their side and they're wicked and they're evil and they're doing using deceit. You can say this because this is what David's praying. He's saying, I know God's not like that. He's not looking on what they're doing and think that's okay. I know that much about my God. He's not approving of their deceit, of their evil, of their seeking to take advantage of anyone. That's the point of this in this part of this prayer. God, you're not like that. I don't have to wonder if somehow you're going to bless them because it appears you are and somehow I'm going to get stuck. He's a God of justice and holiness and righteousness. And that's what he's going to bless. It may appear he blesses the other temporarily, but it's not going to stand. And that's what David's praying. He's being oppressed by his son. It's not right what's happening. And he's saying, God, I know that you're not going to continue to bless that forever. One day it'll happen. And so how do we apply that to ourselves? Someone's ripped you off in a business deal. It appears they got away with it and everything's working out. And providence just happens to be smiling on their deceit. And here's the thing. Oh, maybe we don't pray this way, but we, why couldn't you pray? Lord, you see what's happened here. This isn't what you delight in. Can justice be done in this situation? And where you would fall into a problem is if you try to take justice in your own hands, isn't it? So from our side, we bless, we give them something to drink. But it still says vengeance belongs to the Lord. It just doesn't belong to us, right? That's what David's praying here. Or maybe you're in a situation where your husband is not treating you well at all, not being responsible, not providing for the family, doesn't work much, the bills don't get paid, treats you badly. Hey, you can't, you can go to the Lord. Lord, see what's happened here. Best thing to pray is change him, right? Or do something. But God, you could say, look at this injustice that's taking place here, right? That's what David's doing. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And sometimes it just seems like it's the devil directly oppressing you. It seems like your condition's getting worse and he tells you it's what you deserve. The devil's directly speaking to you. Because what is he? He's the accuser of the brethren. And a lot of times he may use other brethren or heathen to accuse you. And sometimes he accuses you himself. That's his job. Isn't that what he's all about? And he'll use deceit and lies and tell you the goodness of God is for other people. It's not for you. He doesn't love you. Because what does the Bible say? No matter what, our warfare is against whom? Not flesh and blood, but it's against these evil powers, spiritual wickedness in high places, right? I'm saying sometimes this opposition that's being faced here, you could say, Lord, look, he's oppressing me. Look what's going on. It just seems like the circumstances are getting worse, and he's telling me they're getting worse. God, look down and execute your righteousness and justice, because that's the kind of God you are. And so over in verses 7 and 8, he prays to God for guidance in the midst of all this. 7 and 8, he says, but as for me, he says, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. So here's what we need to see here in verse 7. David is not coming before the Lord because he's proclaiming, I'm more righteous than anyone else. That's not his plea, is it? Because he's just come off of what? His sin with Bathsheba is when this is written. So he's not coming for like, I'm holier than thou. That's not his approach. He's saying, what's he pleading here in verse 7? The multitude of thy mercy or thy abundant, overflowing, loving kindness. That's how I'm coming to you, Lord. That's what he's saying there. His hesed love, it's called the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases that we sing about. That's what it's talking about, this steadfast love of the Lord. So what's he doing? He's saying, I'm not coming, Lord, before you with my plea in this oppression. It's not right. So I'm not coming because I deserve anything from you. I'm coming strictly by grace. I'm pleading the grace of God. And we sing that song, only by grace do we enter and only by grace do we stand? And it's not by our human endeavor. That is forever true for us, right? No matter what, from the beginning to the end of our Christian life, to the day we come before him in glory, it's always that way. We come by the blood of the lamb, the song says, right? Romans 5 says this, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom Jesus also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. 
So if we stand, it's not because we're somehow so righteous in and of ourselves. Uh -uh. We stand strictly by grace. That is how we stand. That ought to knock all the arrogance out of us. But he not only comes by trusting in the grace of God, but he also approaches in the second part of verse 7 in the fear of God. See, he says, but as for me, I'll come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And he says, in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. That's the only proper way to come before God's presence. As one writer said, we meet the welcome, friendship, and acceptance of grace extended towards us. And yet, the last half of the verse reflects the majesty, the kingship, and the trembling that fear knows. So you have both here, a glad welcome and trembling reverence together. They should both be there. When we approach God to worship him or come to him in prayer. So there was this great Christian man a few years back, Andrew Bonar. He talked about this Grecian painter would tell this story. He produced this remarkable picture of this boy carrying this basket of grapes on his head. And whoever painted this picture, he did it so well. Those grapes look so real that when they displayed that picture publicly, birds would literally fly down and peck at those grapes trying to get hold of them. And his friends told him, they said, man, you just did an unbelievable job on that picture. You made it look so real. But the painter himself, he wasn't happy. He says, uh-uh. He said, I should have done a great deal more. He said, I should have painted the boy so true to life that the birds would not have dared to come near him. And he's saying, look, I should have attracted them and repelled them at the same time. And I'm saying that's what David is saying here. He's Lord by the grace of God, but he's also sobered by the fear of God. He's holding both of those things about God as he's coming before him. And that's the right way to come before the Lord is the point, right? And here's the prayer. Here's actually the main prayer is in verse 8. David says, because of all this that's going on, lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. He's crying out to the Lord for the Lord to show him what to do because he doesn't know. He says, lead me in righteousness. Make my way straight. Let me see where I should be going because I don't know. His enemies, that's what he's saying. they're saying in verse 9. His enemies are making it a little bit hard for him to figure out. He says there's no faithfulness. You can't trust anything that's in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. It's putrid. And they flatter with their tongue. And he's saying, look, I'm confused. Lord, show me the way of righteousness. Show me the path that I should take. That's what David's prayer is right here. Help me to see and do the right thing. Because he's saying, I want to trust you, my God and my king, to deliver me from my enemies, whether they are literal, physical men or spiritual, wicked spirits that are seeking my destruction. And that's what all he's talking about in verses 9 and 10. Like I said, he's saying you can't trust what they say. They flatter. They use deceit. In verse 10, David says, let them fall by their own counsel. They're forming his counsel to get me. He's saying, Lord, he's praying this prayer. If you can't handle it, you got to stay out of the Psalms, as I heard a man say. But he's saying, you let their devices, like Haman. What happened? Haman is devising against righteous Mordecai. Got this plan, got this scheme. And what happened? His own devices, who was ended up hanging on those gallows? It wasn't Mordecai. God answered that prayer and turned it around. And so really, what do we have here? This is the Old Testament version of, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one that has these schemes against me in so many ways. That's what's being prayed. And to end tonight, in verses 11 and 12, we can rejoice, can't we? Because God has promised he'll bless, defend, and give us favor. He is going to watch over us. Our King and our God will watch over us and promises to be our shield. Look what it says in verse 12. He says, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will compass him as with a shield. And David, he doesn't know when and where and how that's all going to take place. But he is not in doubt that it will happen. Because where it says, for thou, O Lord, you, that's in what's known as the emphatic position. It's up front. He's saying, you, I'm not wondering. He's saying, you, you, Lord, will bless me. No doubt about it in his mind. That's what he's saying. So the enemy may surround the righteous, 
And there was a time, and I believe it's 1 Samuel 23, Saul and his men, it says they had surrounded David. They were coming in for the kill. But guess when they come in and they surround you and they're going to squeeze you and kill you, he's saying here, but God is a shield all around me. They're going to run into that. And that's what happened. You read 1 Samuel 23, Saul's ready to do him in. And all of a sudden, this messenger can't get to him fast. <laughs> Saul, the Philistines. And Saul's got to leave him. That was God. It wasn't just some bad news that just happened to come. That's the way our God is, isn't it? The enemy thinks he's got us circled, thinks he's got us, and it's all over. And God says it doesn't work that way. That's what we're reading there in verse 12. For thou, O Lord, you're not going to leave me in the hands of the enemy. You will bless the righteous. With favor, you will compass him as with a shield. So there was this German theologian, Helmut Felix. So he told of an incident back when he was in grade school at the age of 10. And Ahem, him and his classmates, they developed this intense dislike for this other student whose name was Hans. Why didn't they like him? Because Hans acted like he could care less, didn't pay attention to school. But whenever the teacher asked him a question about any subject, Hans, Hans could tell you everything there was to know about that subject. And it just burnt those guys up. And he had some other idiosyncrasies that they didn't like. So they decided one day, we're going to teach Hans a lesson. We're going to give him a thrashing is what they were going to do. So they're going to ambush old Hans on his way to school. And so they're waiting. And what happens? A strange thing happened. All of a sudden, this day, Hans and his dad is walking Hans to school. His dad was one of the most highly respected men in town. And here's what happened. They noticed something about Hans and his dad when they were going to part their ways and Hans was going to go to school and his dad was going to walk back home. They noticed that his dad stroked his hair and patted his cheek. Just showed him that, man, I really love you, Hans. And that's the way it went. And they noticed that when they walked their separate ways that they would turn around and wave to each other, give this friendly little smile. And that disarmed those guys. Felix said this, he said, he and his cohorts were very touched by this scene and it was as if they came to a collected but unstated conclusion. They didn't talk amongst themselves, but they all realized something at the same time. And it was this, whoever was loved by such a father stood under a protective taboo. In other words, we can't touch a guy like that and could not be molested or harmed. And it says they were gripped by this unexpressed awe about what they saw. And so Hans was spared. And you could say that he was wrapped around with his father's favor as a shield, which is what we get from the Lord, right? And that's the way David ends that prayer. For thou, O Lord... You're like that, Father. You will bless the righteous with favor, and you will compass him as with a shield. And David has confidence that nothing can finally hurt the righteous. Not demons, not sickness, not other men. And why is that? Because God's favor will compass the righteous about. And I'll end with this verse, Romans 8.35. We sing this song. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things, we, God's people, are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Amen? Amen. That's Psalm 5. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for once again revealing yourself to us. You're not a God that has pleasure in unjustice, unrighteousness, and wickedness and evil. But, Lord, we can come before you through the grace and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and know that when we cry out to you, Lord, that you will deliver us, your people, that you will encompass us about with your love and your mercy and your favor because that's who you are. You care about us. Just ask that you'll help us to remember this, Lord, either now in our time of trial or when it comes in the future because it will come. And that's so we can experience your faithfulness and show forth your glory and your care to this world for your people. And we just thank you for your words you've given us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you stand to your feet. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness. 
Will I play?